Well, when I uh, left Fitzroy, uh, it was and uh, I went off to study at university in England, a uh, master's degree. I was young and debonair. I return to you today, and I am older than Homer Simpson. He's 38, I'm 42. I have the same hairstyle now. And it's a constant battle at the gym each week to make sure I don't share the same waistline as Homer Simpson. But it's all been good. Uh, God has been so faithful, and I'm very grateful today uh, to Ken Ewell for all the ways in which he helped me along that journey, all those years of training and studying and going different places. Uh, so I'd like to say publicly my thanks to Ken, the former minister of the church, for his faithfulness in preparing me for ministry down through many, many years. I'm also delighted that God has called Steve to be the minister here at Fitzroy. Steve has had a powerful ministry with very unique gifts. It's just been wonderful how the Lord has brought Steve together with you here at Fitzroy to have a ministry here and, and the challenges that you face as a church together serving the Lord here. Today I want to talk about leadership. And really, as we think about the four new elders, what does it take to be a good leader of the local church? Well, before you can think about being a leader of the local church, you, one must think about what the church is, what the church is about. Uh, maybe you know this uh, already, but the most famous Christian in the Western world is... Anyone? Ned Flanders. I have a friend called Steve, and Steve knows a guy who grew up beside the original screenwriters of The Simpsons. And my friend's a bit of a joker, so th this, this guy who lived beside them has written books. He's a Christian leader, he's written books, and my friend Steve called me in his office one day and said, here, look at this book of the guy who lived beside the guys who formed the, or wrote The Simpsons, and I took the book, so now I turn it over and look at his photograph. I turned it over, Ned Flanders, <laughs> just a spitting image. Which is why the program is so insightful about the church, the strengths and the weaknesses of church. I don't know whether I want Ned Flanders to be the most famous face of Christianity in the Western world, to be quite honest with you. Maybe you have a different view of Ned Flanders. In Tesco's, they have two for the price of one deals. This morning, we have two for the price of one in the parable of the lost son. It tells the story of the role of the church, and it tells the story of good leaders in the church. The NIV entitles this chapter, The Parable of the Lost Son. I prefer to call it the Parable of the Lost Sons because there are two sons in this story and both of them are lost for different reasons. The first son, the younger son, gives us a picture of what the church is for. The second son, the second lost son, gives us a retrospective picture of the do's and don'ts of being a Christian leader. So I thought this morning, we might take a moment or two just to, to look and visit the stories of two sons' lives from the first century Palestine, Palestinian world. But before we do so, perhaps you're in here today in church, and this is really quite a new experience for you, being in a church. Uh, I'm the minister of Low Memorial Church just up in Finicky, and uh, we have people come into our church uh, quite often, and it's such a new experience. It takes them years to get through, pluck up the courage to step over the threshold. One couple who joined us three or four months ago, 
told, told us afterwards that um, it, it had been two years since they received an invite from us to come to our church, two years ago. It took them two years to pluck up the courage to step across the threshold of our church and come into our church family. Two years. You're sitting here today thinking, really? Have a look at yourselves. Only joking. You're very nice and kind people. So what can I expect from church? Well, let's listen to the story of the first son. Maybe you'll recognize him, or if we change the gender, her. Here's a boy who's been brought up in a religious home who craves freedom, absolutely craves freedom. He wants to live a life without any constraints at all. So he goes to his dad and he says, Dad, I want half the money, you know, my inheritance. I want it now, please, so I can go off and live an unconstrained life. The old dad agrees because there's one thing this dad knows about being a dad, and that is sometimes you've got to let your boy go. Sometimes you've got to let them go because you can't live your life for them. One of the hardest things I think a parent will ever have to do, especially if you're a Christian parent, is to let your kids go. You still love them, you pray for them, but you, you can't live their lives for them. You have to let them go. I find in Belfast University is the prodigal son or daughter opportunity. Where do you want to study, son? Anywhere but Belfast, anywhere but Northern Ireland. Pay the fees. Get me out of here. I want to live an unconstrained life. The father's attitude to his first son is sometimes you've got to let them go. And what is so remarkable is that this attitude is also God's attitude to each one of us. You know, God loves each one of us. We are all children of God. But sometimes God has to let us go. It's a remarkable idea, the idea that we can stray from God and God will let us stray. But sometimes God lets us go. I find that very powerful to think that God should be like this, that God should be into relationships. So off this boy goes, and he spends his money buying friends and girlfriends like nobody's business. The money runs out, there's a famine, he sells himself to a pig farmer. If you know anything about first century Jewish uh, Palestinianism, you, you will know that uh, Jews don't eat pork. So the symbolism in the story is that here's a kid who's crossed so many boundaries already, and now he's crossed the final frontier of boundaries. He sold himself to a pig farmer to raise pigs for a people for whom pork is one of those non-negotiable food diets. He's at his lowest point. But this is the unconstrained life. And there are many people today who want to live an unconstrained life. You know, they, they want to be freed from their, maybe their, their past, their parents, their upbringing, the Bible, the church, God. There's only one problem with the unconstrained life. And it is sometimes in an unconstrained life you wouldn't mind a few rules or constraints. But when you give up the Bible, the question is, well, who decides? Who decides where the boundary lines are? For this kid, his life is pretty miserable. I mean, he couldn't get lower if he tried. 
Verse 16 in our, in our scripture says this, He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything at all. A boy who was brought up in a religious home who's gone out in search of an unconstrained life, who has crossed so many boundaries, the drugs, the prostitutes, now the pigs. And I'm sure he thought to himself, I wonder what my dad would think of me if my old dad could see me right now. There are two times in my life whenever God has pierced my soul. I think that's probably the right description, pierced my soul. Uh, which really means, I think, to allow one to feel the way God feels about a person or a situation. The first time God pierced my soul was a few years ago when I buried a child. Uh, and God pierced my soul. He let me feel what that mother felt. And I'll never forget it. The second time God pierced my soul was in February this year. My wife and I, my wife Hazel and I, were in London in Leicester Square. I'm, I'm a movie buff, and uh, needs to say, you go to Leicester Square for that. And uh, we're walking through Leicester Square, and there's this girl sitting on the ground wearing eco-warrior clothes with the, the dreadlocks. And she's about 20. She's literally muddied. Her face is muddied. And very beautiful, young, attractive woman, around 20, sitting in the gutter, while all the other very beautiful, trendy 20-year-olds are going to buy pizza or watch a movie, and she's sitting in the gutter. And so I went over with my wife and, and we gave her some money. And she, she looked at me in that moment and she held my stare. And in that moment, God pierced my soul. I felt her anger. I mean, she was livid that she should be in the gutter. And God allowed me in that instant to see how he sees her. See, one thing we have to learn today is that sometimes God lets us go but that doesn't mean to say it doesn't break his heart. See, he may let you go your own way, but he may be heartbroken as he watches you go. And so there's this boy in Luke chapter 15, and he just couldn't get lower in his life than where he is right now. I mean, he's broken every rule. He's got the prostitutes, he's done drugs or the equivalent, and now he's with pigs and all of that. And uh, I mean, it's just terrible. He thinks to himself, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of my father. But what this boy doesn't realize is that if he only knew how his father felt about him, his father's heartbroken that this boy should be in such a terrible place. All the father wants it is for him to come home. Churches can be very judgmental places. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that for yourself. Um, you should try and be a minister. And you should give out flak jackets when you're going to the ministry, you know, crabby lessons, things like that. You know, I'm joking. Spiritual armor, spiritual armor. <laughs> But, but Christians can be very judgmental, and uh, there is a question of judgment here, you know, what about this kid's past? What about all he's done? The prostitutes, the money, you know, the drugs or drink or whatever it was, the squandered life that this kid has gone through. And here is the powerful thing about this dad in this story. They don't matter. He just wants the boy home. Now, the reason why Jesus tells this story is to raise a question in your heart and mind, and the question is this. 
What if God's attitude to each one of us is the same as this father to his son? What if God's attitude to us is the same as this father's attitude to the son? Well, Jesus tells a story. That's a pretty big clue. And so this boy comes to his senses. I love that line. He comes to his senses. And what he recognizes is this. He knows enough about his dad to realize that his dad's the sort of guy who will probably let him come back in some capacity or other. There's a little glint of light or love or hope for this, for this, in this guy's life. And he thinks, he mightn't welcome me back as a son, but I know my dad, he'll probably welcome me back as a hard hand. If you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 15, verse 20 to 24, we're going to read it together. I think it's going to appear on the screen. Let's read the father's reaction to the son. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The question this story asks is this. What if God's attitude to you and me is the same as this father's attitude to his son? That whatever you've done in your past doesn't matter. God just wants you home. Well, that is the Christian gospel right there. God's not interested in your past and what you've done. He just wants you home. The cross says so. We'll come to that in a moment. I heard this story many years ago in Max Lucado's book, one of his books, of a Brazilian mother. And uh, in Brazil, obviously, you've got very wealthy and very poor people. And this woman and her daughter wanted to go to the big city to, um, you know, get a better life, get a job, and that sort of thing. So she goes to the big city, and like so many country girls going into one of those big cities, there are no jobs. So she drifts into prostitution. And the mother doesn't hear anything from her daughter, this prodigal daughter, for six months. And she begins to fear the worst. So what does the mother do but get on a bus and goes, goes to the city and looks for her daughter? She can't find her anywhere. So she comes up with this idea. She has to go back home. She's got responsibilities. So she goes into this photo agency and she gets about 100 photographs taken of her, the mother. And uh, she gets these photographs and she writes this message on the photograph. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter. Please come home. She put the photographs up in the red light district. She put them up all over the city. And one day, her daughter walks out onto the street and she sees a photograph of her mother. What is a photograph of my mother doing on that wall? She goes up and she reads the message. And she went home. Such is God's love for each one of us. He wants us home. Doesn't matter what we've done, He wants us home. And this is only made possible because Jesus, who tells the story, later dies on the cross to take away our sins. The cross is the central reference of the Bible. The cross is what makes the Old and New Testaments rhyme and cohere. It's not just that 
God has turned a blind eye to all of our sins in the past. You know, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, yours and mine, as if they didn't matter, as if they just don't count. But it is rather that Jesus gave his life for us on the cross and he pays the price for justice himself on our behalf so that we might go free. God's not interested in your past. The cross says so. He just wants us home. And Jesus has made it possible for each one of us by dealing with our pasts in order for us to come home. It's all God's work. Love and justice combine on the cross. He's not interested in your past. The cross says so. He just wants you home. Maybe there's someone here today and you need to come home to God. You need to make a step in his direction. He will run to you the way the father ran to his son and he will love you and embrace you. My favorite illustration of coming back to God is one told by the apostle Paul actually uh, where you know, he uses the imagery of clothing. He says, you know, the way back to God is through the cross. You get to the cross, you take off your past like an old coat stained and torn and stitched together. You take off your past like an old coat and you hang it on the cross and Jesus is there to give you new clothes. He reclothes you in forgiveness and love and grace and mercy and peace and joy and life and you are welcomed in to the arms of a loving heavenly father. This message is at the center of the church. This is what church is about. And this love is not cheap. This love costs God everything, but he was willing to pay it for your sake and mine. Now, if this is what church is about, the role of a church leader is simply to make sure that church is about this. That's it. Make sure church is about God's audacious, outrageous, luxuriant, costly love of God for men and women and boys and girls from every walk of life, across every social barrier, every cultural division. This is what the church is about. And in my experience in Belfast as a minister, I find that most evangelical Christians believe that in their heads, have it up here, and uh, assent to it as well. But, but in my experience, difficulties arise whenever we try to get down to practicalities. This is one thing to believe that prodigal sons and daughters are welcome in the church. The difficulty is when you have to make room for them. When you have to change the way you preach, the way you worship, the way you organize yourself so that people who are well outside our, our church can find a home and feel comfortable here. It requires change. And I find in my experience that that's whenever there's tension in a church. Because whatever we believe in our hearts and our minds sometimes fails to translate into practicalities. That's whenever we find ourselves in a situation like the elder brother, the second boy in this story. I, I, did you get the elder son? You know, his brother has been through the worst nightmare you could imagine. And his heart is so wrong towards him. 
It even says he gets angry, angry at his dad for having the party. And the sad thing is, for a second time that day, his dad has to leave his house and go out and find another one of his lost sons. Verse 28 says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. What's wrong with his son? What's wrong with his heart? I want to challenge, it's my job today, I want to challenge our four new elders together with the existing session here and all of us in three things which, stems, which stem from the cardiac arrest of love which is found in this elder son's life. So here they are, very briefly, three charges to our elders now that we hopefully understand what church is for. First one is this, the elder son lost sight of a father's purpose. Don't lose sight of the father's purpose. Don't lose sight of the father's purpose. I've had to read some books in leadership uh, because we have a, a team, ministry team now, and you know, it's, it's really, ch- life is changing very quickly, and in the ministry, in, in the Presbyterian Church, it's changing very quickly. So I have to read leadership books these days to work out what on earth a good leader is. And uh, one of the books I've read is by John Maxwell, and he talks about two different kinds of leaders. The first one is positional, and he puts it like this. Positional leader. A person may be in control because he or she has been appointed to a position. In that position, he may have authority, but real leadership is more than having authority. So here's a person who has positional leadership. I'm in a position of leadership, and you have to obey me, and you will obey me. I'm an elder, you'll do as I say. That's positional leadership. Now, positional leadership is important. Someone has to be in charge. Someone has to be responsible, but it isn't enough. Another model of leadership is called permissional leadership, and another author puts it like this. Leadership is getting people to work for you when they are not obliged to. That is so much harder than positional leadership. I think when it comes to being an elder, a good Christian leader, you've got to be working for the second one. The best way to do it is by example. If you've ever seen the film Invictus, it's a film about leadership. Stocky, I have an idea for you guys. Get the elders together, watch Invictus. (laughs) Popcorn. It's a film about leadership, the whole thing. Mandela and the captain of the rugby side both agree together. It's by example that we lead. And so for an elder in any church, you have to have the father's heart for prodigal sons and daughters. You have to share his heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I can preach like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I can write theology like John Calvin but have no love, it's for nothing at all. John in Revelation chapter 2 says, Jesus closes the church of Ephesus because they lost their first love. The elder lost sight of a father's purpose. He became bitter and judgmental of the very people whom God's heart is breaking for today. What is the purpose of a father or a mother? To love their children. To love their children. I charge you today, do not lose sight of the Heavenly Father's purpose to love his children. Second, he lost sight of a son's privileges, son and daughter's privileges. Don't lose sight of a son or daughter's privileges. 
verse 29 to 31. Put that on the screen. This is the elder son. He says, But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with your, my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. The irony of this story is that the first son is a wayward son and wants to come home as a hard hand. The second son is a homeward son who lives as a hard hand even though he is a son. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. All these years, look what I've done for you. Sounds a lot like duty. Sounds a lot like trying to earn rewards. It sounds a lot like trying to earn the father's love. But how can anyone earn the right to be a son? You just are one. It seems this boy lacks assurance of the Father's love. A few weeks ago, I read this by Tim Keller, which really shook my world. He says, what are the signs of this lack of assurance? Another sign is that criticism from others doesn't just hurt your feelings, it devastates you. This is because your sense of God's love is abstract and has little real power in your life. And you need the approval of others to bolster your sense of value. We can end up as an elder brother for that reason. I want you to think for a moment about a, a new elder or a new leader in the youth group or a new Christian. And one of the lovely things about being a Christian is you get this servant heart. And you, you know that God loves you. You know that God approves of you. You know he's appointed you and anointed you for a role. And you're ready to serve him with all your heart. And then you get this, I don't know what the collective nine is, but I'll use brood. You get a brood of elder brothers who stand on the sidelines. And they start to criticize you. They start to abuse you. They start to throw little bombs from the sidelines as they sit there and do absolutely nothing for God. And you know what happens? It's happened in my life too many times. We panic. We forget we're loved by God. We forget we're accepted and approved and adopted by God as a son or a daughter. And we feel less assured of his love. And you know what happens in, in my life, or I would imagine your life too, what happens in those circumstances? You start to look for the affirming approval of others in your ministry. You start to look to others, you know, so long as they're, how did you think that went? Da 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 da. No, it's good to get feedback. Approve me, affirm me. I want to be popular, I want to be adored. This unassured, spirit in a church. I wonder if you're a Christian here today and you've been running and you, you're always looking for someone's approval of you. As a leader, the best thing we could do today was say, God, let me have done with that. And may I bask in the reality of your approval of my life. Presbyterian Church, Steve was telling the kids at the children's address about Presbyterianism. Well done, Steve. <laughs> Five minutes, that was good. And our church is a discernment. It's not a democracy. People make this mistake all the time. I've spent 20 years trying to work out what our church is about, to be honest with you. And what I've concluded is our church is not a democracy. It's a discernment. 
It's built on this fundamental belief in Scripture that every believer is anointed by the Holy Spirit, so much so that whenever the believers get together and sit down and listen and discern together, every single believer can and will and should know the voice of God because my sheep know my voice. The code of our church and majority decisions are a concession to Christian weakness. The fact that when Christians get together, not every Christian is listening to the Lord's voice. Church is a monarchy. Jesus is king and he rules here. It's not a democracy. We use democracy as a, as a tool. But it's not a democracy. Our job is to discern the will of God together. And in this discernment, we need to remember who's approving us. Because this is where it gets very, very precarious. If in this discerning process, there are some people who seem to have some clout or other, and we need their approval before we march on, then we're really missing the target of what the church is. See, the only approval we need, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the only approval we need is the approval of God Almighty on the direction of a church. The only will I desire as a, as a church leader is the will of God. Tell our church that all the time. We are going through two months of prayerful discernment at the moment. And I keep telling people time and time again, I'm not interested in good ideas for the sake of good ideas. I just want to know what God wants to do. It may be through you or you and your sharing or my sharing, but all we want to know is God's will because the rest of it's all a waste of time. So many years I've wasted in my life running after good ideas which were never ordained by God. And then you wonder why there's no blessing, why there's no harvest. Verse 31 says, My son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. We don't need to earn God's love. We don't need to earn the right to be a son or a daughter. We don't need to earn his approval. He already loves us. He assures us and approves us because of the cross. The son lost sight of this, and he spent his life trying to earn God's favor. In fact, to use his own words, he described his life as slavery. Slavery. I slave after you. I want to finish with the third, third challenge to our elders. He lost sight of childlike faith. Don't lose sight of childlike faith. Verse 29, he says, yet you never gave me even a young goat. In response to that challenge from the elder brother, we might say, did you ever ask for a young goat? What is childlike faith? Childlike faith is that trust a child has for its parents, mom or dad or guardian. A trust a, a child has for its parents, which really says, um, I trust you for everything, food, clothes, shelter, direction, swimming lessons, wh whatever it is. Uh, a trust based upon a belief that my parent loves me, that my parent only wants what's good for me. And so I, as a child, am willing to trust everything to them wholeheartedly on the basis of that fundamental belief. I know not everyone has had a good family background experience, but if you can understand the teaching here, the elder brother lost sight of childlike faith, so he didn't trust his father. He didn't believe his father was good. So he didn't ask his dad for anything. So he received nothing. Jesus never stopped talking about childlike faith. You know, he never stopped talking, he never stopped lifting a child onto his knee and saying, be like this child. 
Elders, the way we trust God with childlike faith, building upon a belief in His goodness, is through prayer and holistic prayer, where we spend time talking to God and then we open up His Word so He can talk to us. So I want to charge you today, do not lose sight of childlike faith. And the key to childlike faith on a daily, daily level is by prayer. This story is so profound. Jesus knew some of the challenges that would face the beauty of the church through the heart of an elder brother. I don't know where we are today uh, in our own lives. Maybe you're like the first son and, and you're far away from God. I would really like to encourage you to make that step of faith back towards him and you will be surprised the extent of his love and grace and compassion for you. The unconstrained life is not all that it's made out to be. Maybe you're like the second son today and let's not forget this either. God, the father, loves the elder son. You know, he didn't give up on him either. He taught him to see this boy as a brother again. And maybe today for you, you need to make some sort of journey back. You need to make some sort of journey of recognition that, that you can't earn his love. That more important than the approval of others is God's approval of you and your life. Do you lack assurance? Do you lack the assurance of God's love? Maybe today God will give you that assurance again. Or maybe you're here today and the real challenge is to live like Jesus, who picked up a cross and said, not my will, but yours be done. Maybe today is a day where we pick up the crosses again and follow him. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, you know our hearts, you know where we are in relation to you, and the story of this wonderful parable is the story of compassion and grace. You're not interested in our pasts, the cross says so, you just want us home. So Father, may we come home to you today, whether we're a prodigal son or daughter, whether we're an elder brother or sister. And Father, may you help us, and especially our new elders, to lead your church and to make sure that this outrageous love is at the center of this church. Father, we will give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.